Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Books. Where would we be without books? Where would we be without Gulo's Interbird? It's a rhetorical question, sir. But where would we be without books? From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Ann Beattie. Welcome to a Bookworm retrospective show, a celebration of 33 years of Bookworm on KCRW with Michael Silverblatt. Michael recorded more than 1,600 Bookworm conversations. He is on hiatus now for health reasons. Michael has championed writers on KCRW for 33 years, elucidating their texts and raising questions that really make writers think as they locate together the pulse of their work. It's always an honor to talk to Michael, a brilliant reader who has shaped literature in his time by his attention, his ability to contextualize a text, and simply because books mean everything to him. He and I met before Bookworm began, a practice interview. Fishing for a compliment, I brought that up 30 years later. He shook his head and said, you sure didn't make it easy. Honesty is one of his virtues. The Nobel Prize in Literature has been awarded annually since 1901 to an author from any country who has, in the words of the will of Swedish industrialist Alfred Nobel, in the field of literature produced the most outstanding work in an idealistic direction. Michael spoke with eight Nobel Prize laureates. Today, we'll be hearing from four of them, Toni Morrison, Waye Soyinka, Orhan Pamuk, and Seamus Heaney. The great American novelist Toni Morrison received the Nobel Prize in 1993. Michael spoke with her many times. One conversation was particularly important for him. What you're about to hear is a show I'm very proud of from the Bookworm Archives. It goes back to 1998 when Toni Morrison the late and lamented Toni Morrison, announced that she would not be speaking about her opinions of the movie that Oprah Winfrey produced and Jonathan Demme directed based upon her novel, Beloved. And it was perfectly understandable to me. Oprah Winfrey was her friend, so I got in touch with her, and I said, I don't want to talk about the movie either, if you would prefer. I won't even see it until after we speak. Tony talks to us with great intensity about the novel's focus. She spoke to us at great length from her home, The interview was so interesting that the L.A. Times contacted us and asked if we could transcribe it. And Tony was so pleased with it that she said she would allow it to be transcribed and printed, but she would edit the transcription. Well, as you can imagine, this was a real breakthrough for Bookworm. At the center of Beloved is not the thing that people always talk about. They always talk about a story 
that happened in the days of slavery in which an actual woman killed her children rather than seeing them brought back and living the life that she had led on the plantation. But it seems to me that while this is the background of the book, what the writer has done is bring to it the question, what kind of love is too much and when does love of another eclipse the love of the self? The question is, how are we able to love under duress? And when we can, what distorts it for us? And how can we negotiate the various kinds of claims and loves that we choose in order to make it include ourselves, the love of the self that is not narcissistic, not simply selfish, and also to love something bigger than ourselves that is not martyrdom, not uh, setting oneself aside completely. I've been speaking to Toni Morrison, the author of Beloved. Thank you very much for joining me, Toni. This has been a pleasure. Michael spoke with Toni Morrison in person in 2009. Today, I am in a state of great, well, can I say it, pleasure, because my guest is Toni Morrison. We've spoken together in interview on the phone before this, but this is the first time we've met. Her new novel, A Mercy, has just been published by Knopf. She is a Nobel Prize winner. Many people talk about American diversity as if it were invented in the last 25 years. (laughs) But this takes us to our native soil beginning in around 1680. The present tense of the novel is in 1690. And we're seeing natives, slaves, free black people, white people, traders, new landowners, indentured servants. Tell me, Faulkner says writing a novel is like building a chicken coop in a cyclone. What is it like to organize such diverse materials? It's exhilarating just to attempt to struggle with the enormity, the immensity, not just of the subject matter, but of the continent. Um, trying to look at this very strange, very bountiful, but also very dangerous place. Who were these people? And to try to shape a narrative, which I suppose is what Faulkner meant, making order, summoning order out of this chaos. And then ultimately, finally, which you can only do with those 26 letters of the alphabet, is to find meaning in that narrative and in that chaos and in the structure. I think we've entered a time in America where an enormous symbolic act has occurred and we've yet to find out what its meaning will be. (laughs) What do you take to be the revelation we're encountering now that we've elected Barack Obama? Several things occur to me. 
most of them very, very positive. In large sense, it feels brave, this choice. I am aware of the... It's not just that we've been told to be frightened of everything and everybody, foreign and domestic, because somebody's going to get us. And somebody is going to get us, perhaps. They've already tried at 9-11. But the fear thing is something humiliating about that to me as a nation, because underneath it, I keep saying, is a form of cowardice. Uh, Bad things happen. You have to be alert. You should be prepared. You should be tough. But not, oh, my God, this... And that's part of what severe racism is to me. It's the bully's fear underneath which is cowardice. A bully doesn't want to fight you because he might lose. He just wants to beat you up. But the enormous thrill I felt in people's willingness to take it back, their own sense of who, what this country ought to mean, it seemed to me that Barack Obama, with his myriad ethnicities, you know, we say the black African-American. Interestingly, he is African-American in a way that local African-Americans are not. He's a genuine Africa and American connection, but also that experience in other countries, not by flying over them or into their great hotels and, you know, protected by some diplomat, but living there, speaking that language. So these things make the identity game that we always play in this country moot. I can only say it's courageous about him and what who we are. That was Toni Morrison discussing her novel, A Mercy. Michael spoke with Nigerian playwright Woye Soyinka in 2006. He is the author, most recently, of You Must Set Forth at Dawn, which has been published by Random House. It's the fourth volume of his memoirs. He is a globally important playwright. He is, as well, a poet. He is a Nobel Prize laureate, having won the award in 1986. He was the first African to receive the award, but it is a life that's been full of interruption because Shoyenka's pursuit of justice has been, if not as important to him as his art, there's a sense in which, at a certain point in your life, the forward direction that one thinks of as dramatic gives way to a kind of miasma, a a circle of recollection. Recollections of coming in and being terrified that one will not be allowed into one's own country or let out of one's own country, being deprived of a passport, even a UN passport. Mm. How does that affect one's ability to make one's art? Yes, recollection. The triggering power of even trivia, mundane trivia in one's existence, triggering power for recollection is actually enormous. And so uh, that acts both as a, as a check, 
uh, and at the same time, a check comes uh, an instrument of restraint, or else it can act, in fact, in the opposite way, a propulsive, even more determined uh, fashion that, good God, I've been through this before, and uh, it didn't really resolve itself. Maybe now is the time to resolve it. So I, I, I sensed, as I read You Must Set Out at Dawn, that it was a record and a quest for a sense of honor and justice that is defined, say, by a mythic past, by standards that are upheld by the gods, that are the gods may be gods of creativity and destruction simultaneously, but they are absolute. They're not compromisers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that the book is about the quest for people who will not compromise and who will not betray. Creativity for me is not just uh, in the domain of words, of paint, of, um, of sculpture and so on. Uh, creativity is also in the domain of politics. And when you speak about a creative human being, is somebody uh, it's not just a quester for perfection no it's a quester for innovative forms of expression and politics is also like that politics is the management of human beings is a transformation for uh, for establishing community uh, as a viable project you need a create you need creative leadership and you need uh, a sense of integrity, uh, the, the other imponderables like uh, justice, uh, secure internal security, harmony within the community. These are also projects for the creative mind. Myth would like to tell us that it's sometimes possible to go home again. But in your plays and in many other myths, we're told you can't go home again. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about that theme? Because it seems to be the politicization mm -hmm. of that theme that mm -hmm. this book, You Must Set Forth at Dawn, by my guest Wally Shoyenka, published by Random House, rests upon. Well, many writers would agree, by the way, with that theme, uh, that you cannot go home again once you've left on a quest that it's not... It's, it, it's not fated to go back home. One expression I used when I was in exile uh, during the bachelor period was that, no, I'm not in exile. I'm just in a political sabbatical. Because <laughs> it was self-deception. I was in exile. I couldn't go back. If I'm robbed of choice, I find it unacceptable. I find myself diminished. If I choose to be seduced by the outside world and to stay there, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing. But it has to be my choice. That was Woye Soyinka. Today, we're hearing from four Nobel laureates Michael talked with on Bookworm. We'll be back after this short break. I'm Ann Beattie, and we're hearing from Nobel Prize laureates Michael Silverblatt has spoken with on Bookworm. Turkish writer Orhan Pamuk received the Nobel Prize in 2006. Today, it's my great honor to have as my guest Orhan Pamuk. He is the Nobel Prize winning author, most recently, of The Museum of Innocence, published by Knopf. There is as well a memoir of childhood and of Istanbul, um, called Istanbul, and a book of essays called 
other colors. Now, I want to begin by highly recommending The Museum of Innocence because it is a novel of genuine and thoroughly bereft passion. And it seems to me to be one of the most delicious books that I've read in a very long time. Whereas the subject of scandal in Anna Karenina is, of course, adultery. Here in the Museum of Innocence, the subject is virginity. And it is necessary to know that as late as 1975, when the novel begins, the subject of virginity is still very crucial to a Turkish marriage. Can you explain? Yes, it's, of course, it's a social thing. It, it's a historical thing. It's, um, it's an idea. Uh, also, unfortunately, related to a person standing in society. This taboo will fade away in years, so in future generations may not understand the logic of the book. I think this subject is a good way of uh, representing the um, repression of a vast culture. In fact, I would call my book uh, Love in a a, a love story in a repressed uh, society. This is a love novel, but it does not put love on a pedestal. It doesn't say, like Romeo and Juliet, oh, how enduring lovers, how much they love, how much they suffer. Turkey is changing. Woman is now wearing miniskirts and going out the streets and fighting for their independence. The book covers some 30 years, And the things he speaks of are disappearing as he speaks. It's what leads him to want to create a museum of his love. And he collects, among other things, 1,400 cigarette butts smoked by his beloved because in conventional ways, at a certain point, with a horrifying lie. He's lost her. He loses her, in a sense, over and over and over again because he doesn't know, it seems, what truth is because truth depends upon which culture you're talking about, the westernized one or the Turkish one. I like the way he gets old, wisens up, sees the whole panorama of this romantic affair or cruelty of love. This I really paid a lot of attention in this book, how it feels when you're in love instead of putting love on a pedestal. For me, it was most the most challenging part of the book was to go... And, and write, interestingly, about love pain, how it spreads from the stomach, how it hits the head, how it makes you so, well, in a popular language, depressed and sad. And you've addressed the issues of creating a national Turkish literature. What is the relationship between a national literature to a global literature? 
First, one does not begin writing books uh, concerned and to address these issues. One wants to explore the areas, lives, things you know about lives, things you want to express through literature. Then the more you famous you get, the more you begin to get, get translated, then the issue of representation gets to be troubling. That when I begin writing in Turkey, no one called me a Turkish writer because I was in Turkey addressing the Turkish audience. The more my books begin to get translated, uh, the more the damning problem of representation, which is more grave in non-Western world because language is like, say, Hungarian, even Chinese literature or Finnish literature or Turkish literature or Korean literature is not known. Once you reach America or um, Europe, that one, now I'm translated to 57 languages, then suddenly the issue of representation begins to poison your book. My Turkish readers are now, unfortunately, looking at my books, reading them as if I'm whispering our private lives to others. You know, I've read all of your books, and this is probably the book that, like Ulysses, would guide a reader through Istanbul. And it seems to me that our greatest novels often are handbooks to a world that has existed. Joyce famously wanted all of the locations in the Dublin street map to be me- at least mentioned in Ulysses. Novels preserve the way how we lived, the way how we behaved, the language, the daily language we talk. Novels preserve not only the smells, sights, sounds uh, of, a, of a culture, but also, of course, preserve the language itself. And I care about that. I respect Joyce in his understanding that novels are also, in a way, my un- that's how I put it, museums of daily life, how we related to the world. That was Turkish novelist Orhan Pamuk. Irish poet Seamus Heaney was the 1995 Nobel laureate. This is Michael Silverblatt, and today my guest is Seamus Heaney. It's an unusual show. We're speaking from the Marion Hotel in Dublin at the Rejoice Festival, which is a festival in celebration, not of the 100th anniversary of the publication of Ulysses, but the 100th anniversary of the day on which Ulysses takes place, a single day. And I wondered really at this point, what does Ulysses mean to you? Well, it's a kind of Irish book of life by now, Ulysses. What it means to me personally is is a language carnival, as we know. It's uh, it's the language brought to preternatural uh, pleasure in itself. I mean, Joyce's work is elaboration, and uh, an element of pleasure always has to be there. An element of excitement. I think without without that pleasuring uh, aspect, uh, writing work, the work of writing is drab enough, isn't it? I mean, there's a story of Joyce 
we can understand this easily in, in, in when he was doing Finnegan's Wake from the study uh, kind of laughter would emanate he was you know discovering pleasures and the puns and so on the the I think we've got to, got to, got to distinguish between between your actual lived life, what Yeats called the bundle of accident and incoherence that sits down to breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, as Yeats says, there's a distinction between the bundle of accident and incoherence that sits down to breakfast and the poet or the writer reborn in the work as something he says intended and complete. I have a friend who writes me, and when he writes me a letter, he writes, Dear Bundle. <laughs> you know what I You describe many invertebrate things buried and calcified underground. The question is, is there something that still lives and writhes in mud? Um, this is Seamus Heaney reading the first poem in his newest collection, Electric Light at Tomb Bridge the actual place is where uh, it's celebrated as they say in song and story and it was in the Irish uh, tradition there's a famous song called Roddy McCorley it's about the hanging of a young uh, insurgent in the 1798 rebellion Roddy McCorley goes to die on the bridge of tomb today it's got uh, kind of high resonance in, in the common ear here um, but anyway that's just and of course, during the during the troubles, was it being on a bridge was liable to be blown up, so it was always protected by checkpoints, etc., etc. A tomb bridge, where the flat water came pouring over the weir out of Loch Ney, as if it had reached an edge of the flat earth, and fallen shining to the continuous present of the ban, where the checkpoint used to be where the rebel boy was hanged in 98, where negative ions in the open air are poetry to me, as once before the slime and silver of the fattened eel. There actually is, there still is uh, an eel fishery at Tombridge, and I, I wrote a poem about that eel fishery in 1969, so this is kind of, I suppose, a... Uh, a lap of honour to my own poem <laughs> more reflexive, more relaxed and at the same time you're quite right unless the old needle flashes up out of the mud you know, you may have your lap but you won't have your honour <laughs> <laughs> That was Nobel laureate Seamus Heaney Today's Bookworm retrospective show also featured other Nobel laureates Tony Morrison, Woye Soinka and Orhan Pamuk the next Bookworm retrospective show will feature Nobel laureates Kazuo Ishiguro, Mario Vargas Llosa, Doris Lessing, and Sheswa Miwosh. This is Anne Beatty. It is a pleasure to recall my dear friend Michael. Thank you for joining us. Today's show was produced by Alan Howard and Connie Alvarez. The engineer was P.J. Shahamet. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms.
am a bookworm. We are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.